you have your Bibles, please uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We opened with this text this morning. We'll go back to it. Paul, in speaking of the resurrection of Christ, after dealing with some of the errors in the Corinthian church, he wrote in verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray now you'd open our hearts and minds to your word. And please, Lord, we pray, open your word to our thinking, to our hearts and to our minds, Lord. Help us to be attentive and to not be forgetful hearers. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. In 1 Corinthians, Paul sets forth the nature of the resurrection. He has quite a bit to say. This whole chapter deals with Christ's resurrection and then based on that, our future resurrection. But he says there, now Christ is risen from the dead. He speaks, speaks of it as the reality. It's happened. He is risen. And he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first fruits. He's not the first person that came back to life. There were other people, both in the Old Testament. If you remember the men or the man that was, uh, they, they buried him in Elijah's grave, and or Elisha's grave, rather. Elijah never was buried because he went to heaven. Um, but in Elijah's grave, the man came back alive. We know in the New Testament, there was Jairus' uh, daughter, uh, the widow of Nain, her son, and then uh, Lazarus was risen. All three were raised from the dead. They were resuscitated, but there's no indication that they uh, didn't subsequently you know, grow old and pass away. But Christ is the first fruits. He's the first one to rise from the dead, never to die again, as the scripture says. So Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And actually what he did by his resurrection was initiate the new creation. You know, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, we're told in Second Peter chapter 3, in which righteousness dwells. When this world is destroyed at the second coming of Christ and the final judgment, uh, the earth will be burned up, we're told it will be dissolved, actually. Uh, it will vanish away, but God has prepared, or will prepare, a new heaven and a new earth for us. And that's where we'll dwell for eternity. And we thank God for that. But when does this new creation begin? Well, it already did begin, because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, as I said, never to die again. And now, not just with him, now when his uh, spirit regenerates the elect, when they hear the gospel and they're born again, what does scripture say about that? It says, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation or a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, there's no categories in this world in which a Christian can really fit. There's no category to, uh, you might say, to uh, box in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, we can't define him by anything other than himself. We can use terms and analogies, but ultimately, you have to know Jesus to know who he truly is because there's none like him. You know, the name Michael the angel, who was a created angel, but he had an awesome name, the name Michael, and Mikael, which means who is like God. And the answer is God tells us there is none like him. He's unique. Christ is risen from the dead. And then Paul sets forth the basic truth. 
For since by man came death, by man meaning Adam, the, the name Adam actually in Hebrew means man. Often when you read it says the man, it, it, the actual Hebrew word there is Adam or Adam. There's other Hebrew words for man, but that one means man. The first man was Adam, and Paul recognizes that. By man came death. When Adam sinned, he was told, The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And he did die that day spiritually, and in 936 years, or 39, um, he died physically. But Adam brought death upon himself and his posterity. That's us. That's why it says, uh, as in Adam, all die. Those who were physically born are subject to death. Adam's sin is imputed to them. Adam represented us. He was the federal head, and that federal comes from the Latin word fetus, meaning covenant. Uh, Adam was the federal or covenant head of all those who were born physically by natural generation. We add that because Christ was born and conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary in a unique way, so he's not... Adam's descendant by natural generation. That's why Jesus was conceived without sin, and we refer to that as his impeccability. Christ entered humanity in a unique way, and he's 100% man and yet sinless. But all those of us who have been born by natural generation have Adam's sin placed to our account because he represented you. You were in the garden by your representative. And sometimes we go, well, that doesn't sound fair. Most people don't object to the idea that Christ represented them on the cross, okay, that he took the hell you deserve. We're, we're okay with that. We just don't like the idea of having Adam's sin imputed to us. But that's the way, you know, God set things up. And as one of my professors said when he struggled over the doctrine of imputation and election, he said his father finally came to him and said, why don't you start dealing with the God who is instead of the one whom you'd like to exist, Okay. And he said that kind of struck him. It was like a, a, a verbal slap up against the head. And he got to thinking, yeah, maybe I need to find out what God himself has said and what he's done. And so uh, it helped him get through those wrestling moments. But in this case, as in Adam, all die. That is, all those who are in Adam are going to die. Uh, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. That means all those who are in Christ. Christ is the one who brings life and has brought life and immortality to death to excuse me to light through the the gospel and has made death null and void he's annulled death in the book of acts chapter 2 we find the apostle peter preaching and he begins to speak about the exaltation of christ you know and we, we the bible speaks of christ's humiliation in his death and his exaltation and in the uh Westminster Larger Catechism, it's got a beautiful section. I was going to, you know, kind of frame it in my own words. I'll just read it because they say it better than I could. This is question 52 in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Because when we talk about the, the exaltation of Christ, in the, the question is, um, what was the estate of Christ's exaltation? That's 50, question 51. The estate, that is the states we would say today, of Christ's exaltation comprehendeth his resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and, fourthly then, his coming again to judge the world. Those are the stages or the states of his exaltation. That he's risen from the dead, that he's ascended into heaven, that he's seated at the Father's right hand, and that he is coming again in glory. I think we're familiar with those things because if you were paying attention when we recited the Apostles' Creed, we went over all of those so that's the, the uh, exaltation of Christ. So then the question asked next is, 
How, question 52, how was Christ exalted in his resurrection? We understand that it's clear that is clearly an exaltation. How does that display itself as an exaltation? The answer is given. Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that not having seen corruption in death, his body did not decay. I'll comment on that. Because sin had been taken away, Christ had made propitiation, that is, he'd secured a right relationship with us and satisfied the wrath of God against us. But he also, there's another aspect we refer to as the term expiation. He had taken away our sins. Our sins that were placed upon him were fully paid for. They were gone. That's why he rose from the dead. Because sin, death had no claim upon him. We're going to consider that in a little more detail in just a moment. So, Christ, because he had taken care of sin, death had no more claim upon him. And one of the aspects of death is not just physical or physical demise, it's the decaying of the body and returning to dust. Remember, as God told Adam, dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Why didn't that begin to happen with Jesus? Because Adam had that placed upon him because of sin. Christ, after he had suffered, it made full atonement for sin. He yielded up his spirit. His physical body died, but it didn't see any corruption because death couldn't touch him after that because he'd taken away sin, and death had no legal basis to harm Jesus's even his physical body anymore. So that's what they're referring to. Very important point. So uh, Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that not having seen corruption in death, of which it was not possible for him to be held, and having the very same body in which he suffered with the essential properties thereof, but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to this life. Really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead the third day. He rose in the same body in which he lived and which he was crucified. It was the same, but it was different. You know, the, the people say, well, how could that be? Well, do you have the same body you have when you were a newborn baby? The answer is yes and no, isn't it? It's the same physical body, but it's different. It, you know, it's different. Well, Christ has the same physical body in which he suffered, but it's different. Paul uses the analogy of a seed. You put it in the ground. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the, it's, the seed doesn't disappear. It transforms. And what comes up is clearly related to the seed, but it's really different also. You know, uh, And that's... The resurrection, Christ has the same body, but with different principles, you might say. But he's still a human being, and as to his incarnation, he's just now exalted, no longer subject to mortality, meaning death, and the other common infirmities belonging to this life. Really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead the third day by his own power. That's a very important point. It shows his deity. Uh, whereby he declared himself to be the Son of God to have satisfied divine justice, because, again, death had no claim on God's justice was fully satisfied. So to let you know, and me know, and all those who hear the gospel, that your sins really have been taken away, God raised up Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is God's testimony telling you that all your sins were paid for by Christ. Because if one sin imputed to him had not been fully atoned for, he would have had to stay dead because death comes by sin. But because sin was removed, death couldn't hold him. You know, God is a legal God. We use the term forensic. Most of us now are familiar with that, sometimes from TV programs, uh, you know, detective stories where you have forensic pathology and you know, forensic coroners and things like that. It means legal, legal. God is a forensic God. 
Uh, he deals with us on the basis of law, and that's a, such an important point, and very much lost to a lot of evangelicals in our day and age. But God deals with us on the basis of law. That's why sin brings death. Why? Because that's the legal penalty of it. That's why once sin is atoned for, once God's justice is propitiated, or God is propitiated, and once our sins are expiated, that is taken away and cast into the depths, into the sea of forgetfulness, uh, where God won't remember them against us anymore, then sin can't hurt us anymore because the law has no claim upon us, even as it had no claim upon Jesus. And so the third day, God raised him from the dead. And that's God's assurance to you with all your problems, all your slip slide, and all the difficulties you have in life. God's never going to leave you nor forsake you because Christ is risen from the dead. Your sins are gone in God's presence. So now the Holy Spirit's working in you. Your body's not yet regenerate. We look forward to the resurrection, our own where we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and your body will be conformed to the body of Christ. You'll no longer be mortal, okay? You won't be subject to death or sickness or sin. I personally really look forward to the time when I don't have to contend with the stupidity of my own flesh, you know, whether it's attitudes or actions or thoughts. That's what, Thank you, Jesus, you know. And by the Holy Spirit, now God gives us grace to rise above that. But unfortunately, we have a tendency to stumble and fall. That's why John had to write in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, notice John the Apostle, the beloved Apostle, he said, if we say we have no sin, he didn't say if you people say it, you know, like he was above that. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John knew as Christians in this life, your body's not yet, not yet been regenerated. And so you're going to have to contend with things. Your spirit's been born again. That's why in our hearts we love God and it increases. But your flesh is still flesh. That's why you can't just go by your appetites and your lust and your own fleshly desires. You have to go to God's word. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to cleanse our hearts and minds. As it says, how much more shall the blood of Jesus Christ purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Holy Spirit's able to reach into your very heart of hearts and transform you. And he begins more and more to conform you to the image of Christ. So we do begin to love God. And so that's what they're saying here. Christ satisfied divine justice to have vanquished death in him that had the power of it and to be Lord of quick and dead, the living and the dead. Uh, all which he did as a public person, meaning he represented us, uh, the head of his church for their justification, quickening in grace, support against enemies, and to assure them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. Uh, that's question 52 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's worth you take your time and study it out. If you have a copy, you can go online and find it. And look at the scripture proofs, because if you want to learn theology, the Larger Catechism is the premier document to go to. In Acts chapter 2, at verse uh, 22, Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. He was beginning to preach after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come in power. You know, the tongues of fire sat upon the heads of the disciples, and then they spoke in tongues, and people heard it, and it names off all the languages. And they were known languages. They just hadn't studied them. And when they heard that, they said, What is this? And Peter got up and told them. Some said, Oh, these guys are they're filled with new wine, you know, because they figured they'd gotten drunk. And that's why to those who didn't know the language they were speaking, it sounded like Babel. But Peter stood up and said, these men are not drunk as you suppose. But then he went on and said in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, that is, his being delivered unto death, by God's purpose, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now that's interesting because he says God was absolutely sovereign over what happened, but you're responsible for your sin in doing it. And so, well, how can that be? Well, because in a very real sense, God uh, is sovereign over everything, 100%. But that doesn't mean he approves of sin. Sin is always the responsibility of the creature. But God had decreed that Christ would die. He's not the responsible author of sin, but he is the decretive author of it. And it's not blasphemous to say that because his decree takes in everything. This text teaches us that. The worst sin committed in history was the murder of the Son of God. Jesus was innocent. Jesus wasn't put to death for anything he'd done. And yet he was delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God. In God's counsel, Christ is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And he came and he repeatedly said he was going to die for the sins of his people. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus knew what he was going to do, but that didn't relieve those who crucified him of their responsibility. So that's an important lesson. Again, we have to deal with God as he reveals himself, not as we would like it. Okay, and so here Peter says, Christ was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's our God. But then he says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. But then he goes on and says this, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. And then this wonderful statement that was actually quoted in the Westminster Larger Catechism, says, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. I've already covered some of this in the forensic aspect. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus. That's pretty awesome. You know, in a real sense, when you consider who Jesus Christ is, as revealed in Scripture, he's 100% man, but the Bible is very clear, as we heard in the Scripture lessons, when Peter, excuse me, when Thomas saw him after the resurrection, eight days after the first Sunday, Thomas, when he saw him, Jesus said, okay, you want to put your fingers in my, your hands, your, in my wounds? Go ahead. Do it. And what did Thomas do? It doesn't say he did. It doesn't say he didn't either. I'm not sure what, what happened there. We're just not told. But he did say to Jesus, as he said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, by the way, you know, some of the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, oh, that was just an expletive. He just shouted, oh, you know, like somebody taking God's name in vain. You know, just said, my Lord and my God, in it, you know, just shouting it out. That's not what it says. And there's no variance there in the manuscripts. Okay, it's interesting. He said to him. Thomas was talking to Jesus. That, that to him in Greek is auto. He said to him. Uh, okay, my Lord and my God. And what did Jesus say? Anytime anybody else fell down or worshipped or tried to do that to any creature, if they're godly, they always go, whoa, don't do that. I'm, I'm just a fellow creature. Jesus said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believed. Jesus didn't rebuke him or correct him. Thomas had it right when he said, my Lord and my God. Jesus is indeed God. Death couldn't hold him. The impossibility of Christ being held uh, by death is because of the power and the authority of just who Jesus is as to his person. Uh, Turretin, Francis Turretin, is in Lengthy Theology, uh, Volume 2, 
if those of you who have that, you might want to look it up, page 365. He uses the term theologically, which is, he wasn't the first, but it's got autozoe, autozoe, which means self-alive. Jesus said that the Father had given to the Son to have life in himself. That's in John 5:19. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit partake of uh, deity. They partake of all the attributes of God. It's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Son has the fullness of the Godhead in him and that power of life he possesses. In Romans chapter 9, verse 5, when Paul, writing to the Romans, sets forth in that chapter a lot about the sovereignty of God, he laments over his fellow Israelites who were unbelievers, but he said um, in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ. This is Romans 9, 3. For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises. Then he says this, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, that is Christ's physical descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. That's who he identifies Jesus as being. He is the eternally blessed God, and then Paul adds, Amen. So Paul says, yes, he's descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He belongs to the people of Israel physically, but he is the eternally blessed God. His goings forth, as it says in the Old Testament in Micah, his goings forth have uh, been from of old, even from everlasting. Uh, the Hebrew there is if in the days of eternity, very beautifully put. So Christ rose by his own power and authority because of who he is. In John chapter 10, if you don't mind here, I'll turn there. In John chapter 10 at verse 18, Jesus said, uh, No one takes it, my life, from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So Jesus, as the Messiah, had received authority to lay down his life, which is what he did for us. They couldn't have taken it away from him unless he let them. Remember when they came to arrest him and he said, Whom do you seek? What happened? When he said, They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, literally, he said, I am. And this says they went backwards and fell down. They just got knocked on their tails. And Jesus let them get back up, and he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them again, I've told you, I am he. If you seek me, let these go. And so the rest of the disciples took off. And John tells us that was to fulfill the scripture. And Jesus' words that all those that the Father had given to him, uh, none were, were lost. They weren't to die at that time. And But here we were told... As Jesus says, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Jesus raised himself. Now, granted, where the Son works, the Father is working, and there's plenty of scriptures that say God raised him up. Peter says that, whom God raised up, because Jesus is God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about, if, but if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus dwells in you, he who raised up Christ will also quicken your mortal bodies. So Jesus was raised by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son. So it's a triune God at work. But it's an important aspect to note that Christ raised himself, which is a testimony of his deity. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, uh, when he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That is, Jesus is a descendant of King David. And if you look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, that's clearly, quickly established. David was told that of his loins, God would raise up a king that would sit on his throne forever. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the king. He is the son of David. But according to the flesh, but then it says in verse 4, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Well, how does the resurrection from the dead declare Jesus to be the son of God? That is, you know, if you have a son, if you're a human, you're your son is human. If you are God and have a only begotten son, your son is God. He's of the same essence. How does that declare Jesus to be the son of God? Because Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, but he also raised himself. And so Christ uh, raised himself by his own power and authority. Now, granted, in fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But that's why it was impossible for death to hold him. Death didn't stand a chance against Jesus. Anybody that reads the Gospels will recognize that. When you read the Gospels and learn who Jesus is, you realize the wonder is not that he rose from the dead. You expect that once you get to know him. The wonder is that he was ever subjected to death and suffering. How did that happen? Well, because of you and me, because of our sins. Jesus knew if he didn't bear your sins, it was over for you. You'd be in hell for eternity. So he who is eternal took your hell upon himself at the cross. And so Christ is risen from the dead. Death had no chance against Jesus. It was an uneven fight, okay? It'd be like if I went up against Mike Tyson or something like that, it'd be over real quick, okay? I would tell you, don't bet because you shouldn't be doing that. But if you were, if that was going to happen, put your money on Tyson, okay? Because I'm going to go in and it ain't going to happen, okay? The same thing. Sometimes you just see uneven matches. See, sometimes it used to happen a lot in college football. You know, you, they end up with a score of like 75 to zero or something, okay? I think now they, they, at least in high school, so they sometimes stop the game just in pity. But there was no stop in the game. When Jesus went up against death, death didn't stand a chance against our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ broke the bars of death. He kicked the teeth out of it. He destroyed it. He rendered it null and void. For us now, Jesus said in John 5:24, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, that's present tense in the original and in English, present tense, has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has already passed out of death into life. If you're a believer, your death happened 2,000 years ago approximately at the cross. That's the hell that you had you had your name on it, your judgment. Christ took that, so now he can't touch you. It's been done. Christ, who is eternal, suffered the same sufferings of the equivalent in God's justice of you going to hell for all eternity. Jesus took your sins upon him. So that's why God can forgive you now on the basis of justice. Okay, the Christianity is the only faith that I know of, the only religion that, that has that. If you talk to others, they, Islam will just say, well, God just forgives you because he's God, he can do whatever he wants to. So you know, I've said to you know, friends who were Mormons or former Muslims, so God, there's no basis in justice for God forgiving? They can't answer it. They don't know what to say. They don't have any basis. Christians can say, God forgives me on the basis of justice. First John chapter 1, I quoted it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins. You know why God is just when he forgives you? Because your sins have been paid for. There's a basis in justice 
That is the death of Christ for your sins being forgiven. So death didn't stand a chance. It was the prophetic promise in Psalm 116 where it said, You will not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer your Holy One to see corruption. God had promised that to the Messiah, and so it was certain to take place. So death had no power over Christ once he had suffered and died because God had promised that it wouldn't. And so Christ had that promise. Also, as I say, the forensic victory accomplished by his sufferings and death, in Hebrews 1.3, rather, it refers to Christ's sufferings, and it says that after he had purged our sins, that is, made full atonement for them, taken them away, he sat down at the right hand of God. Let me, let me read it. Uh, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. There's no name more exalted than the name of Jesus Christ. So he purged our sins. And so Christ took away our sins. Again, death didn't stand a chance. So it has to do with the prophetic promise of God, the power and authority of Christ's person, and the forensic victory. Jesus is raised because he is the resurrection and the life. As I say, it was, it's, it's no, when you get to know who Jesus is, and I'd encourage you to get to know him, Call upon him. Say, Lord Jesus, let me know who you are. I really want to know you. And then read your Bible. Christ was is raised because he is the resurrection. The dignity of Christ's person, person as God incarnate means it was impossible for something so transitory as death, however scary it looks to us, that it should restrain him from rising from the dead. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Christ is risen. He's at the Father's right hand. So what does all this mean? Well, if death could not hold Christ, then good news, it will not be able to hold you. All those who trust in Christ are redeemed. As I quoted John 5.24 earlier, he will raise you up when he returns. In the meantime, he'll keep you. When you physically die, you will pass from this life into the glorious presence of God. That's based on God's promise. That's not just a pie in the sky trying to comfort you with false hope. God himself has said that. Death has lost its sting because Jesus Christ took away our sins. Uh, he broke the bars of death. Can't hold us now. It also means that he can get us through any and all of life's trials and difficulties. You know, everyone in this room is probably going through something at some point. And if you say, well, not that right now, Stick around. There'll be something, okay? Um, we all have trials. Well, Christ can get you through those things, and God allows those things to come into your life to draw you closer to himself, whether it's by way of chastisement or he just wants you to glorify him by bearing up under suffering. You know, God will be glorified. Death, the most difficult of enemies, being destroyed by Jesus Christ. Everything else is pretty trivial if you think about it. Uh, and it's subject to his will and power. Our Savior is God, okay, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We've been reconciled to the triune God. So Christ is going to help you with your problems. Go to him. Take him to them. Say, Lord, I have this problem. I can't, I, I don't know what to do. He does. He'll know. Jesus is the way. 
He's the way to the Father. He's also the way through your troubles. Um, Paul says in Romans 8, chapter 30, or chapter 8, verse 31, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Good question to ask. Now, the answer is nothing, no one. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? That's the God we serve. He loves you. He loves you so much more than you know. You know, and he's willing to help you. And he has, a, you know, the, the saying, you know, it's trite because it gets misused. But God does love you and he does have a wonderful plan for your life. And I'm talking to believers here. Okay. You call on Christ. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay. So call on the Lord. Pray. Say, Lord Jesus, save me. And you're not going to do that unless the Holy Spirit works in your heart and you've heard the gospel and believed. But if that's what's going on, then don't hesitate to cry out and say, Lord Jesus, make me a true Christian. Grant to me forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, I want to be your man. I want to be your woman. I want to be the person you want me to be, Lord. Have mercy upon me. You know, like the, the blind Bartimaeus, he wouldn't shut up. You know, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. People came by and told him, shut up. You're making a scene. And he wouldn't. He just kept on going. He was driving everybody nuts. There's this blind guy sitting there on the side of the road yelling his head off out, outside of Jericho. Jesus stopped. And he called for him and says, oh, Bartimaeus threw off his coat and he went to Jesus. And some said, well, why did he throw off his coat? Well, I don't know. I think maybe he knew Jesus was going to do something for him, but he wasn't going to let anything hinder him from getting to Jesus. And later he could go back and pick it up because he could see where it was. But I love it. When Jesus uh, has him presented to him, he comes to Jesus. Jesus looks at this guy that's blind who's been crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> you think the Lord didn't know what he wanted? He wanted Bartimaeus to tell him. So Jesus wants to help you, but you know, sometimes he wants you to tell him what it is you need help with. He wants you to pray. He wants to have a relationship with you. So go to him. He can help you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Christ died for us. And then thirdly, death with all of its finality is not final. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega in every area. He's the beginning and the end. Death isn't the Omega. Jesus is the one who is the resurrection and the life. He's the Omega, not death. Death will be defeated. The book of Revelation tells us that death and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire. It'll be gone for those who believe. Death is not, even I say, with all of its finality, death is not final. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. It says that in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. He has the final say in everything, in heaven and on earth. And he's willing to hear your prayers. The one who is almighty, who rules over all, he's willing to listen to you. If that's not encouragement to pray, I don't know what is. So please, call upon him. Pray to him. Take your heart to him. You know, the Bible actually uses the expression, pour out your heart before the Lord. Spend time in prayer and watch things begin to change. You'll discover, wow, and those of you who pray know what I'm talking about. You'll discover, wow, I, I really do have a God who hears my prayers. God really does hear my prayers. Sometimes he answers them saying no. Sometimes it's not yet. Sometimes it's be patient. Sometimes it's uh, let it suffice thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes he says no and wait. But sometimes, more often, he says yes for your prayers for yourself and for others. So don't hesitate to pray. He has the final say in everything. And then finally, Christ is fully willing and able to save to the uttermost all those who come unto God by him. It says that in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 through 25. 
He is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God by him. He's willing and able. Remember, the, the again, the leper? I love that, that story. It actually happened. A leper came to Jesus. Luke tells us he was filled with leprosy from head to toe. He came to Jesus and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I love that because that man had no doubt of the power of Jesus. He'd already heard about the miracles and the cleansing and the help Jesus had given to others. He didn't doubt Jesus' ability. He just wasn't sure Jesus would want to help someone like him. I think we're generally in that condition. You know, we know Jesus is gracious and godly, but particularly if we've sinned and we have to go and ask for forgiveness, why would the Lord want to have anything to do with me? We're like that leper. We come to the Lord in all our uncleanness. And sometimes we have to say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You know what Jesus said to him? I am willing. And it says he reached out and touched him. Jesus touched a leper? Mm, yes and no, because as soon as he touched him, he was no longer a leper. He said, I am willing, and he touched him, and the man became perfectly clean. His leprosy departed. Praise God. It's the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. So if you're here today feeling like a leper, or later on maybe, you know, days ahead, you may feel like, man, I've blown it. Okay? And you go, I don't know what to do. Well, go to Jesus. He's, he's not just able to help you. He's willing to help you. That's the Jesus Christ of the Bible. So if you're a believer, you can go to him. And if you're not a believer, call upon him. Repenting your sins, trust in Christ. Okay? He's willing to receive you. You're not going to do that unless the Spirit's at work. But you know what? If the Spirit's at work in your heart, applying the gospel to you, be encouraged. Go to Jesus. Something brought that leper to Jesus. Something happened to that leper's heart. Where he thought, you know what? I'm going to venture on this. Remember the woman that snuck up behind Jesus and touched his garment? And all of a sudden, her, her hemorrhaging stopped. She was afraid. Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? She was in trouble. She just An unclean woman had come up and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And she, trembling, it says, she came and, and you know admitted it was her. And what did Jesus tell her? He said, daughter. And I believe that might be the only place Jesus calls somebody that. He said, daughter. He said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow. Your faith has saved you. You know why her faith had saved her? Saved her? It had brought her to Jesus. Whenever Jesus said that to someone, it's because they'd come to him. So what do we learn from that? Let's go to Jesus. Death couldn't hold him. Don't let anything hold you back from going to Jesus. Okay, Call on the Savior today. Trust him with all your heart and praise his name. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We pray that you would apply this to our hearts by your spirit and keep us in your love and grace. For Father, we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.